Good evening. You know, I always tell my church, but I feel like it's important to say it every chance we get. One of the most hopeful sounds that we ever hear in the church is those little voices and their cries and their screaming, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's actually the most hopeful thing we could hear in the church because it says that we have a future. If we communicate to these kids that they belong, uh, that they belong to us and they belong to God. So it's good to see you kids. Have a good time. You're in good hands with Miss Carlin. I'm so glad to be back with y'all. It's been two years and it's taken me two years to work off uh, cock of the walk. Uh, I think I'm finally back to fighting weight after that big pile of fried catfish. Uh, But praise the Lord anyway, I'm going to get ready this weekend too. I am so glad to be with you. Uh, I bring you uh, greetings and love from the family up in D.C. Uh, We're cheering you on and praying for you as you continue to to fight the good fight uh, to build God's God's kingdom here in Jackson. And so um, I'm very honored and very glad to be able to to share this weekend with you. Um, And without further ado, I would love for us to turn to our text for this evening. Uh, This weekend, we're going to be working through the first chapter of Philippians. And tonight, we're going to begin with the first 11 verses of chapter 1. The first 11 verses of chapter 1. When you're there, say amen. You're not there yet, say hold on. All right, I got you. Philippians chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, uh, if you fold it in half, open the Bible in half, and you start turning the pages to the left, you'll end up in the New Testament. Uh, It's right after uh, Ephesians, right? I always have to say Gentiles eat pork chops, right? Like that's that's my mnemonic for remembering that, y'all. That's free of charge this weekend, y'all. Gentiles eat pork chops. You're going to remember that. (laughs) Philippians chapter 1, the first 11 verses. This is God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be able to sit under your word this evening. We're so grateful that we get to do this together. 
We know that our brothers and sisters around the world, they don't all enjoy this privilege of a non-threatening opportunity to sit under your word as the family of God. So we pray that you would help us to be grateful. And we pray that you would help us to be both hearers and doers of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would take my five loaves and two fish and feed your people. We pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. After he was roughly treated by authorities, he was thrown into jail, and there he sat. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King had been thrown in jail for his efforts at interrupting a system that worked to oppress millions of black people. And as he sat in that jail cell, there was all of a sudden a knock at the cell door. And it was one of his allies who showed up and they, they brought him uh, a correspondence. It was a newspaper. And it was difficult enough to be sitting, sitting in a jail for the work that he was doing. But when he opened that up, he began to learn that there were eight other clergymen who had written publicly to call into question the work that he was doing. The people that he would have expected to be his partners in the work, the people that he would have expected to be on his team, were the very people that were subverting his work. And so Dr. King began to pen a response. And that, that response has come down to us today uh, as what we know to be letter to Birmingham jail. But long before Dr. King was sitting in jail, there was another who was sitting in a jail cell. Uh, the Apostle Paul was thrown into jail. He was roughly treated by the authorities. And he was, he was thrown in jail for trying to interrupt a system of brokenness and oppression that, that really impacted all people ever since the fall. A system of sin and idolatry and selfishness and unrighteousness. And as Paul sat in his prison cell, all of a sudden there was a knock at the door. It was his dear friend, Epaphroditus. And very contrary to what Dr. King experienced, he, he, he gets a letter and, 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 and he gets it in the form of a person. A person who sits down to care for him and to share with him news about his dear friends back in Philippi. You see, Paul is, is sitting with his dear friend and, and they begin to have a conversation about how the family of faith is doing in Philippi. And, and Epaphroditus begins to, to lay it on him. These were dear friends of Paul's. They were wonderful supporters of his ministry. And, and as he begins to hear news from Epaphroditus, Paul's heart is warmed. Paul is stirred to write what we have today as the book of Philippians. But the difference between Dr. King's experience and the Apostle Paul's experience had to do with one thing, partnership. Partnership made all the difference between these two different pictures. And over this weekend, as we consider the big theme of mission, I thought about what might be a helpful theme to bring to you and and I can't think of any more important theme in the life of a church than the idea of working together 
for the advancement of the gospel. Working together for the advancement of the kingdom. And I think that, that Paul writes this letter for a number of reasons. The first reason is that he wants to thank the Philippians because they have been generous supporters of his ministry. The second thing that Paul wants to do is he wants to assure these friends regarding his circumstances. Obviously, you know, could you imagine some of our friends who are missionaries that you support all of a sudden being in jail and, and their fate is going to be decided whether they live or die? You would be concerned for them. You would wonder what's going to happen. And so Paul writes to assure them. But Paul is also writing because he wants to focus them. Here's the big idea that happens in the book of Philippians. The Philippian church had been wonderful partners with Paul in his ministry of advancing the gospel, but he's writing in order to strengthen their partnership with one another in the advancement of the gospel. Because as we're going to see as we work through this, they were facing a lot of tensions. There were a lot of trials that they were enduring internally, and they were facing a lot of opposition from the outside. And so Paul writes to strengthen them. And everything that Paul says throughout the letter is, is geared at getting them to work together for the gospel. And we are going to get to listen in, and it's going to inform the way that we work together for the gospel. So, this evening, I want us to take a look at this passage, and we're going to look at it through the lens of two points, where we see the victories that lie behind and the battles that lie ahead. Now, Here's the main idea. Here's the walk away. And I want you to mull this. This is fruitful reflection for you in your personal life. It's fruitful reflection for you as a community. Here's the idea. We need to remember the victories that lie behind so that we will have the necessary encouragement to face the battles ahead. We need to be able to look back and remember all of the victories behind us because those victories behind us are going to be the strength and encouragement that God's grace will be sufficient when we meet the battles ahead. Before every battle we face, we encounter sufficient grace before we get to the battle. And so we're going to get into the victories that lie behind with our first point. The victories behind. Now, in order to understand the book of Philippians, we have to understand some of the context of this community of friends that Paul has in this city of Philippi, in the region of Macedonia. And where do we get that information? We get it if we look at the book of Acts, chapter 16. The book of Acts, chapter 16, tells the story of how this church in Philippi came to be. Paul invites us to do as much reflection on Acts 16, on that, on that story, when he says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So here's the question I want to ask in this first point. What exactly did Paul remember when he remembered these friends in Philippi? What did he remember? I think the first thing he remembered was their astonishing conversions to faith in Christ. Now, if you remember the story of Acts 16. Uh, Paul winds up going into this, this city of Philippi. All right, He winds up going into this city and he has a rough go of it with his, with his homeboy Silas. They, they have a rough go of it, right? He, 
he remembers what happens in the, the course of their story. So let's, let's run through what he remembers. The first thing I want you to see is he remembers, even before he remembers their conversions. I skipped a point. It happens to preachers sometimes, all right? I skipped my point. The first point, scratch that on your notes. The first point is this. He remembers how God sovereignly overrode his plan to get him on the God's plan. All right, so here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Now, here we go. Let's roll. All right. I clicked in, all right? Got to thinking about cock of the walk. Sorry. All right. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right. <laughs> so remember, back in, the, in, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, this is what happens. Paul and Silas and, and the team, they have ministry plans. They have vision. They, they got it all up on the whiteboard. They got the ministry plan all laid out. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go to Bithynia. Somebody say Bithynia. Bithynia was the city that Paul and his, and his friends had their eye on. And they were planning to go and do ministry in Bithynia. But, but God, all of a sudden, sovereignly interrupts his plan. It says in the text, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Chapter 16, verse 7. Paul had dreams. He had ambitions that did not stop with Bithynia, but Bithynia was on his mind. And all of a sudden, God interrupts his plan. God edits. God does uh, uh, copy, delete. That's what he does with Paul's plan. Now, can you imagine it? Paul was probably a little frustrated. Paul was probably a little disappointed. This plan he had for Bithynia was amazing. Do you know all the good ministry he was going to do in Bithynia? Do, do you know all the souls he was going to reach and, and, and all the growth that was going to happen? But God edits the plan. And what we need to see in that very thing is that it is a victory when God sovereignly overrides your plan to get you onto his plan. It's a victory when God gets you to embrace a yes to his plan and a no to your plan. It's a victory when you are able to trust in a good God to do good things in your place. Because we have our plans, right? We have our dreams. We have our ambitions. I know y'all got all of the plans here, Redeemer. I know y'all got big ambitions to see the kingdom go forward. And you're going to lay out your plans. And you know what? God is going to sovereignly edit those plans. But here's what I want you to see. The reason why Paul could rejoice so much in the sovereign editing of his plan is because if Paul had had his way, he never would have encountered the people that came to be his greatest supporters in the ministry. He never would have met the Philippians. He never would have seen the amazing things that happened in Philippi. These were his ride or die people. Like they sent money all the time. They supported. They showed up. They backed him, and he never would have encountered them if he had gotten his plan. I'm glad that the Lord edits my plans. I'm glad that I can trust in a God who sees it all. He doesn't have to process it. He knows everything instantaneously. He, he doesn't have any shortage of information about what's going on in your life. You know you can trust him with your life. You know, I like the old gospel song that says, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. And that is true. And, and Paul celebrates that victory. It was a victory. The next thing that Paul remembers is their conversions to faith in Christ. 
Now, this is beautiful. This is powerful, y'all. I love this because it's so instructive for us. We American Christians need this text. We need this message. Now, check it out. Paul gets the sovereign edit of his plan. And he begins to go on his way into Philippi. And he goes and he shows up in Philippi and there is nothing really going on. They, they don't even have enough Jewish men to have a synagogue. It, it's, it's just low stakes ministry. It's small potatoes ministry. They, ain't nobody in Philippi had a podcast. They weren't getting invited to the Gospel Coalition. There wasn't nothing going on. It was, it was, it was not popping. And so Paul and his Associates, they go down to the river where there are a group of Jewish women praying. And they go and they begin to meet down there and they begin to preach the gospel. And all of a sudden, this woman named Lydia, it says that the Lord opens her heart to respond to the, to the preaching of the word. And immediately she says, come stay at my house. Come make my house the outpost for your ministry. You know, they, did, they didn't have a church building. They didn't have a place to meet. But God provided the meeting space. They, they didn't know what they were going to have in terms of a ministry center, but God provided that space when Lydia comes to faith. And we come to learn that Lydia is a wealthy woman. She's a woman of means, and she comes to faith. And not, not many days later, as Paul and his, and his companions are, are traveling back and forth, they keep going down to the river to pray, they encounter this young slave girl who is oppressed. She's being used by, by these evil people and they are manipulating her and they are taking advantage of her because she has an evil spirit that enables her to do things. And Paul casts the demon out of her. He remembers seeing her in her right mind on the other side of that oppression. And no doubt she became a member of that community. And then when those evil oppressors of that young slave girl come to know that Paul is responsible for this. Paul and Silas, they incite a rebellion. And they have Paul and Silas beaten with rods and thrown into prison. But if you remember the story, it looks something like this. They don't just put them in jail. They put them under the jail. They're in the deepest part of the prison. It's pitch black. And then all of a sudden, Paul and Silas, they're in the stocks. They're not just buried in the bottom of the jail. They're put in the stocks buried under the jail. And even in that situation, they're sitting there. And all of a sudden, Paul goes, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And Silas goes, there is no shadow of turning with thee. All of a sudden, the place starts shaking. And the prison doors fly open. And then there's this jailer who he knows that he's dead meat if these people escape. It's his life. It's his head. They will kill him if these prisoners escape. And so he takes his sword and he's about to commit suicide. And Paul remembers stepping up and saying, wait, wait, you don't have to do this. We'll stay here. And then he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Can I tell you about my Jesus? And he gets to preaching to this, to this jailer. 
and he comes to faith. And the text says us that Paul baptizes him and his whole household. He remembers Paul's heart is full because these people come to faith and then they immediately begin to participate in the work of the kingdom. Paul remembers these radical conversions, the fruit that God gave them. And he gave it to them through their hardships. He gave it to them through their sufferings. That's how God brought the fruit. We oftentimes say, Lord, just give me that big promotion and I will do everything for your kingdom. And God says, I am going to promote you with this affliction. (laughs) Affliction can take a number of different looks. That hardship can, can look many different ways. But it is specifically through the hardships. We're going we're gonna to look into this tomorrow morning. We're going to dig into this. But this is what happens. These people come to faith and Paul remembers their conversion. But what else does Paul remember? Paul remembers how the Lord redeemed and united a cross-cultural community. Because you had a wealthy Jewish woman... You had a previously oppressed and poor slave girl who was a Gentile. And then you have a blue collar working man in in the in the jailer and they wind up in the same community. And Paul rejoices because there's something powerful that is that is demonstrated about the gospel in the formation of this community. This community is a testimony to the reconciling power of God in Jesus Christ. It was a victory to see people from different walks of life living together in love. It was a victory to see the poor worshiping with those of means and to see the the needs of the poor alleviated and the resources of the rich given in love. It was a victory to see everything that was happening in this cross-cultural community. This was a group of people that shared a common Savior despite all of their differences. What else did Paul remember? Paul remembered their incredibly generous financial gifts. And we have more in terms of Scripture that to fill us in in terms of our understanding of who this church is. This is all framework, right? This is, this is all framework to help us understand the book of Philippians. This group of people is described also not only in Acts 16, but also in 2 Corinthians 8. Now, here's the thing we need to appreciate about this community. They were going through hard times themselves. They had enough problems of their own. They easily could have said, hey, Paul, we got enough drama of our own. You're going to have to handle your business out there. They had enough going on. You you know, the the kids were acting up in the house. The job was crazy. They they had enough going on. They, They could have excused themselves from caring about what was happening out there. But that's not what they do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is this is what Paul says about them. To the Corinthian church. Now, Paul uses the the Philippian church in order to bring a challenge to a very wealthy, gifted church in Corinth that was talking a good game, but they weren't following up. And so this, this is what he says to them. He says, 
Uh, we want you to know, brothers in Corinth, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. That's the Philippians. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Their poverty, extreme poverty, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. You're, that, that should make the signal scramble. Because usually we, we think that generosity needs to wait until we actually get a bunch of stuff. And we spend a lot of our time trying to accumulate. And we have an acquisitive spirit. I need, to, I, need to, I need to bring it in, bring it in, bring it in, bring it in, bring it in. But you know what? That thing that's elusive, that one thing that's most elusive to us, enough. Enough is elusive. It keeps slipping through our hands. And before you know it, it's never enough for you to be generous. But the church in Philippi, in Macedonia, they didn't wait until they accumulated a lot. They were faithful with the little that they had. And it says that their extreme poverty overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul continues, he says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Now, I didn't really come up in here to step on anybody's toes. But before I got down here, I got like half a foot. You know what I'm saying? This gets everybody. You'll get that later. That, that, it, it gets all of us. They gave beyond their means. They gave till it hurt. Listen, if it hurts when you give, then you're doing it right. Amen. <laughs> if it doesn't hurt when you give, let the text challenge you. Because Paul is trying to pull on this community and he's saying, look at the lived embodied example of this particular local church. And let that drive you, y'all. But he says, don't just look at them. See what they were seeing. He continues on. I can testify, and beyond their means they gave, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Begging us to give. Usually we wait for people to beg us before we give. But it says that they were begging, can we help? Please let us help. Please let us serve the, 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 the advancement of the kingdom. Take this, Paul. Please take it. We want to bless you. We want to see people come to know Jesus. And you know why? This is why this church was Paul's greatest supporter in his work of mission. They cared about the world in that local church because their local church was represented. The world was represented in their local church. They cared about the world because the world was represented in their local church. They cared about those from Asia Minor because those from Asia Minor were represented in their local church. They, they, you, you hear what I'm saying? I, I need my African brothers and sisters in my local church because they help, they help an entire continent of people to take on a real embodied, personal importance to me. I need my brothers and sisters from Japan and, and, and Thailand and, and Korea in my local church. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not because I can do them a favor. It's because I really need them. I need them to be able to see what I cannot see and to love who I cannot see at this moment. Because, you know, all of us have invisible people in our lives. You know... Uh, what invisible people are, right? If you talk to someone who has ever been homeless, who has ever been on the street, one of the most difficult parts of that, 
Aside from having to squeak out your existence and wondering where your next meal is coming from, one of the most painful parts of that is the feeling that you are invisible, that you do not matter, that no one sees you. And here's the deal. All of us have people who are invisible to us. And what that means is we don't see them. They don't, they don't register in our minds or in our hearts as important. For some of us, it's a particular ethnic group. For others of us, it's people in a socioeconomic bracket. For some of us, it's the little rugrats that leave toys around for us to step on. We don't see them. But in God's kingdom, there are no invisible people. There are no invisible people. They give out of this impulse, this generosity. But here's the important thing that you need to see. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 8. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Here's the other element. This was a Gentile church largely. And they gave for the relief of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. They were, they were despised oftentimes by their, by, by their Jewish uh, contemporaries because they were those people. They were those people. But the Philippians had come to encounter Jesus in such a way that they would not count the Jewish people in Jerusalem as those people. They knew that the gospel is only gospel if it's good news for those people. If your gospel doesn't have room for those people, then it's not good news. It's good for nothing. But the Philippian church, they had a gospel that was good news, even for people who formerly didn't think much of them. And they begged for the opportunity to bless them. It's beautiful. But what, what Paul says next is most significant. This is what he says next. They gave to, to relieve the saints. And this not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You will never get free enough to give yourself to one another until you give yourself first to the Lord. Amen. You got to give yourself first to the Lord and trusting your destiny to him and trusting your caretaking to him and trusting your vocation to him. Because if you don't entrust these things to him, let's just take an example. If you don't entrust your vocational trajectory to God then what you will do is you will step on everyone around you in order to get ahead. You will not be free to love people. You will only be able to use people. And you will only deal with people in as much as they can serve your ends. You will use people that you were supposed to love. But if you give yourself first to the Lord, which basically means put yourself in his hands, put yourself in the hands of this God and Father, put yourself in the hands of the God who was willing to go through hell for you rather than enjoy glory without you. Put yourself in the hands of the one who allowed his hands to be nailed to take away your sin. Put yourself in his hands and then you'll be free to give yourself to one another. Paul remembered their generosity and he loved the Philippians and what God was doing in them. They had so many victories behind them. But for all of these victories, for every inch of growth, for every act of love and deed of service, Paul gives all the glory to God 
in verse 6 because he's, he acknowledges that, that it was the God who began the good work in them who would bring it to completion. And what, and what he's saying is that God began the good work, God sustains the good work, and God will bring the good work to completion. He, he who began a good work in you, not just as individuals, but in you as a local church, Redeemer, the God who began a good work in y'all, <laughs> he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. He didn't bring you this far to leave you. He, he, he intends to do more than you expected him to, more than you could ask or think. And that's what Paul is saying to them. And everything that I'm saying in this point, everything that I think Paul is inviting us to reflect on when he says, I remember you, and he's inviting us to enter into his reflection, his memory. Everything that he's saying about these victories that lie behind is this. We must take stock of all the victories in our lives because this is going to be our assurance when we get to the battles ahead. If you remember that God saw you through that difficult time, then you will have one more piece of evidence that the Lord is going to see you through this time. God has a track record of faithfulness to his people. You cannot find any point in time where God has failed his people. God does not have failure in his vocabulary when it comes to the way he deals with his people. And when we look back, when we're in touch, many of us need to start the old school habit of just keeping a journal. There's, there's an old school cat named George Mueller. And he was famous for his prayer life. And one of the things that George Mueller did is he kept a prayer journal. And he put that, that prayer journal into two columns. He had the prayer, and then he had a column for the answer. He expected the answer to his prayer. In George Mueller's journals, there is more than 50,000 recorded entries of prayer. And 5,000 of those prayers were answered on the very day that he prayed them. And he recorded them. And that's why that brother had unshakable confidence in the Lord. He ran an orphanage that required a lot of money and he never raised money. It was an act of faith for him. I'm not saying you missionaries don't raise money. <laughs> brother George had the kind of faith because he had, he had taken stock of the track record. Are you struggling with doubts today? Are you struggling with trusting God with something right now? I would propose to you that one of the ways that you can, you can work through that is by making a list and working through all of the things that the Lord has done, all the ways he has showed up. Think about the prayers. Think about the, the, the sleepless nights that God turned into rest. Think about all of the needs that were met. Think about all of the protection that he gave. All of the, of the things that God was doing, seen and unseen, that you can just imagine. Do you have air in your lungs today? It's a good day. Do you, do you have, are you in your right mind today? It's a good day. And that's a gift. That's a gift from a kind father. He's a good father. Take stock. That's just a little. And, and you know what might be a wonderful opportunity for y'all as you gather together as a community? is together 
remember all of the things that God has done in this church. All of the things that God has done, the people that that God has brought. Think, Think about all of the opportunities that you've had to serve your neighbors. Think about the people that have come to faith. Think about the stories of victory. Think about all all the ways in which God has sustained you. And that is going to help prepare you for the battles ahead. Remember his faithfulness. That's why back in the Old Testament, they would raise an Ebenezer. They would pile up the stones. And we need to pile up the stones, y'all. We got to pile up the stones in our lives. Because that's what's going to help us. And let's move to our second point, the battles ahead. Now, here's the deal. As we said, following Jesus does not turn into an easy, breezy existence. It involves you in the cruciform life. To follow Jesus, there's self-denial. To follow Jesus and to be like him, it involves carrying a cross. And it's hard. And not only that, there's... The, the world, our own sin that resides within, and the devil. And here's the deal. I, I often find it a fruitful reflection. I, I, C.S. Lewis, screw tape letters, y'all familiar? If you're not familiar, just let me hit it real quick. It's a, it's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote uh, to try and, you know, imagine uh, an older devil uh, discipling or schooling up younger devils on how to basically... Uh, attack human beings, like how to really undo them. And they get into these really interesting dialogues, and I think Lewis is on to some interesting things. I bring this up to say, I want you to think about this. If you were your worst enemy, how would you try to get you out of the work of the kingdom? How would you try to disrupt the, the, your participation in the work of the kingdom? A fruitful reflection for you as a community is to think, if you were your worst enemy, Redeemer, if, if you could think for a moment what, about being the greatest enemy of this local church, how would you try to, to unhinge it? How would you try to get this church off of its course of gospel ministry and fruitful labor and, and love together? W- would you get them arguing about politics, maybe? Well, would, you, would you get them to start Casting suspicion at one another. Would you get them to, to, to really focus on being critics in the pew rather than worshipers? How would you get you off track? Would you get you looking horizontally and comparing yourself to other ministries in the city and saying, well, we're not that. There must not be anything going on here. What would you do to get you off track? The enemy of your soul wants to kill you. He, he's out to kill, to steal, and to destroy you. That's a part of the battle that lies ahead. But then there's the battle with our own, our own sin and our own selfishness and the way that we affect one another in that. We sin against one another. And, and sinful people tend to respond sinfully to being sinned against. And so when someone sins against us, we tend to answer it with more sin. And it compounds it. And then it's all jacked up. This is what happens. There are battles, selfishness. This is what's happening in the, in the church in Philippi. They were on hard times. They had given generously. They were tapped out. But then life started to squeeze them, and they started to fight and bicker with one another. They, they started to, to, 
suspect one another. And not only that, there were opponents of the Apostle Paul who were sneaking into the church and they were floating teaching that was contrary to the gospel that Paul was preaching. So they got this, this false teaching that has entered into the church. They're fighting with one another. They can't get themselves together. And then I want you to see what Paul does throughout the letter. He begins to walk them through this course of reflection on the centralities of the faith, the things that are core to the faith. What's he jump to in chapter two? Humility. He, he, he begins to work them through what is the essence of the gospel. That God who exists on the throne on high humbles himself. And he comes down and takes the form of a servant. He doesn't come down as a, as a baller and a shot caller. He, he could have come down and, and been El Presidente. He could have come down and, and been a, a, a worldly physical ruler. And that would have been a quantum leap down. But he comes and he takes the form of a servant. And not only does he take the form of a servant, he offers himself up to die. And not only does he offer himself up to die, he offers himself up to die the most shameful death. He keeps going lower. And what he gives these Philippians is a gospel principle of downward mobility. That is very contrary to the American notion of upward mobility. It was very contrary to the Roman way, too. But it's countercultural. It's countercultural. That's what he hits them with in chapter two. And then in chapter three, he gets right at the core issue of righteousness. Why? Because a lot of the conflicts that we experience in community are the result of self-righteousness. All of the other things we look to that make us okay. You know, we, you know, we believe in justification by education. So the smarter you are, the more theology you know, the writer you are with God. The more God likes you. He prefers you, actually, because you invited John Calvin into your heart. Right? And we look down our noses at those who aren't as theologically astute as we are, and we... We put ourselves here and we put them there and it's impossible to live together in love with people that we look down on. That's self-righteousness. I have time righteousness. You know what time righteousness is? It's when I say, we're leaving for church at nine o'clock, honey. And I get to the door and I'm like, it's nine o'clock. She don't love them. She don't want to worship them. <laughs> She's one fool with all them kids up there. She's like, a uh, little help. I'm like, I'm trying to worship the Lord. I'm trying to stay in the spirit. I need to stay away from these kids right now. I got to preach the word. I can't have them get me out of the spirit. Time righteousness. And, uh, and, and there is just, it creates tension between my wife and I. The Lord's healing me, y'all. He's healing me by being around Elbert. He's helping me. <laughs> I love him. The Lord sanctifies me. What other kind of righteousness do we have? You think about the kind of righteousness that you struggle with. We all have a version of it. And we use it as a measuring rod in which to judge other people. And, and it, becomes, it becomes a factor in the way that we relate to one another. So it's important that Paul takes his lavish resume. And he lays it all out to them. All of his goodness. His, his ethnic superiority, his religious intensity, his devotion to God, his intensity 
He, he lays it all out and then he just tears it to shreds. And he says, all of that, when it's used as a way of getting right in God's eyes, it's not a resume, it's a rap sheet. Because we got to repent not only of our sin, but of our righteousness. Of all the good that we think we do to get ourselves in better standing with God and to, and to get him to, you know, prefer us a little more than those people who don't do what I do, who, who don't achieve like I achieve, who aren't successful like me, who aren't diligent like me. You know, I showed up for the ministry event. Where are they at? Probably off at Cock of the Walk, where I wish I was. You know, like that. <laughs> yeah, you see, like you can be present at a ministry event and in your heart, self-righteousness is festering and that tears at the fabric of unity. So Paul talks to them about righteousness. And then in the end, after, after he talks about righteousness, he talks about pressing on. He talks about focusing their ambitions. And then he goes and he ends the letter on God's provision. My God will supply all your needs. Because we've already talked about it a little bit, but one of the other things that gets us at one another's throats is that we're all trying, we're all trying to accumulate. We're all trying to gather. Materialism has its clutches on us. And we take our cue from the call to worship of the world. You know, that, that's a good way to think about your life. When you think about the competing, the competing allegiances. You take a worship song that we sing to God, and then you just flip that and you be honest. You take a song like, here I am to worship money. Here I am to bow down to Ben Franklin. Here I am to say that you're my God. That's what we do. It, don't, don't, don't let it be benign. It's malicious. But he gets after God's provision. God provides. If it's God's will, it's God's bill. Where God guides, God provides. If he's calling you to it, he'll see you through it. And that's what Paul ends with. And so he, he helps to give them the framework to, to appreciate how they're going to be able to make it through the battles ahead. But ultimately, here's my close. And this is the good news. There is one primary victory that lies behind, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we need to keep on looking back to that victory. And even if we're facing losses right now, that is the victory that overwhelms every loss right now. That's the victory that is in bold, and all of the contemporary losses are just in small print. And we also need to look forward to the battle that is not ours, it's the Lord's. Every battle is going to belong to him and he's going to see us through it. And that's the good news. And this is the framing up of Philippians. We're going to talk about working together to, to partner in the gospel for the sake of the kingdom. And I want to invite you to reflect on these pieces and we're going to dig in tomorrow morning and get after it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the saints of old who teach us. And we pray that you would help us to have humble and teachable hearts. We pray that there would be something tonight from your word that your spirit impresses on us. And we pray that Jesus, as we leave this place, you would be the true preacher that preaches to our hearts once we leave this building. And that you would drive the truth of your grace and your hope into our hearts. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.